Hello! And welcome to the giant money gun edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of, yes, another crazy week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. And we have a great show this week. We're going to talk about stimulus payments. We're going to talk about PPP payments. We're going to talk about Amazon and how evil it is. We're going to talk about dividends. We're going to talk in Slate Plus about the IMF and the World Bank and what they are or are not doing to help the poorest countries in the world. It's a jam-packed show and it's all coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Okay, so I'm going to start with a weird kind of guessing game numbers round. Anna, Emily, what proportion of Slate Money's listeners do you think received a stimulus payment in their bank accounts this week? Well, that's just such a good question. I think it's a very small percentage. I, I would reckon it's 10%. I think it'd be more than that. I, I think it'd be more than that. I mean, I'm going to go on the assumption that probably 80% of our listeners are in the US and the overwhelming majority of them are taxpayers and probably they're banked. You know, they have bank accounts, so they just tell the um, IRS what their bank account number is. So it's not like they're going to have to wait for a physical check. So at that point, the only reason why you shouldn't get a check is basically if if you earned too much money in 2018 or if you're some weird, if you're like married to an undocumented alien or a few other things like that, which is probably like edge cases. So I'm going to say it's 40, 50%. Yeah, it's probably, I would guess a little over half, I would think, but. Tell us, write in and tell us, please. Yeah. I think I'm right. Let us know. Very if unscientific you, poll. <laughs> very, very unscientific <laughs> poll, but just send us a quick email Slate money at slate.com with, yes, I got my money, or no, I didn't. I'm also kind of interested whether it's, mostly binary did most people just get twelve hundred dollars or nothing or did a bunch of people fall into that kind of liminal zone where they'd get somewhere in between because they were earning enough that the payment started going down but not so much they got zero well and also some people should be getting more because of kids if you yeah if you have a kid you get five hundred dollars anyway or is that like means tested as well you get 500 per kid if you get the stimulus check 
in the first place. And I think it is also means means tested. Like it, it goes down if you make over the seventy five a year for a single or one fifty for married. It's complicated to be <laughs> basically the, the the upshot is that it, it's complicated, and some unknown percentage of Americans wound up getting their stimulus checks this week. At the same time as some unknown percentage of small business um, owners wound up getting their PPP checks this week, Paycheck Protection Plan, um, not all of them have gone out yet, but um, I'm assuming that within a week, nearly all of that initial tranche of $349 billion will go out to small business owners. Um, it is clearly not enough. And while the people who didn't get stimulus checks aren't mostly super annoyed about that. I've seen some people saying like, I got some weird windfall income in 2018. And that means I'm not eligible, but I should be eligible because I'm not earning any money. Like, there are definitely people who should be getting stimulus checks and aren't. The real anger I'm seeing is from small business owners who just didn't have the right banking relationships and didn't manage to get their PPP applications in. And they are just furious that that money has run out and they are worried they're going to end up with nothing. Fun fact is that 13.7% of the PPP loans went to the construction industry. Versus 9.1% of the PPP loans. Which one small business owner told my colleague stands for poop, 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 <laughs> went to the restaurant industry. Now, the construction industry so far in March uh, lost 29,000 jobs and the restaurant industry in March lost 417,000 jobs. Yet the construction industry was the uh, top industry beneficiary beneficiary of the PPP loans, which kind of, I think, is a very telling way of talking about <clears throat> how the program was poorly structured. And like Felix was saying, benefited those who had the good relationships with their banks over those who probably needed the money even more, but just, you know, don't have that kind of relationship, aren't as savvy about applying for the money. Like there are some law firms that were out there like drumming up interest in getting these loans and um, like uh, franchise restaurants, like Ruth Chris Steakhouse got um, $20 million in PPP loans also. It's just, I think it was a poorly structured there was, program. There was definitely this weird carve out. So to, in, to be eligible for the PPP loan, you need to be a small business with fewer than 500 employees asterisk and then there's this asterisk or you can be a restaurant with any number of employees so Ruth's Chris Steakhouse has 5,000 employees and they managed to rustle up two different subsidiaries which they decided were eligible for PPP loans so they got twice the maximum and people are looking at them going look you're a publicly traded company this money was not designed for you and that 20 million dollars could have gone to a genuine small business which really needed the cash right now. But I think that there's right. a little bit of a false scarcity issue here. It's, it's is a that, real scarcity you, issue. No, it's a real scarcity that's been created but doesn't need to be. I mean, I, I don't think the issue here is companies getting too much money. I think the issue here is that it was too small to begin with. It shouldn't have been designed in such a way to go through the banking system. It should have, I think, a lot of it should have just been very similar to how we did the personal payments. You know, I realize it's going to be harder if it was simply done from like the IRS sending out based on like corporate taxes. But at the end of the day, we need firms to get money. We can allocate so much more money to this than we already are. So I think arguing between firms is less the issue. The issue is that we just need more money to go out right. to firms. And I think that if they hadn't Absolutely. capped it at $349 billion, 
a lot of the anger and the agita would not be there. Like they're talking about another 250, which I suspect also won't be enough. Um, but I also suspect that if they add another 350 or so, then it probably will be enough. So I don't understand why they're trying to sort of minimize the amount of money that they're spending on this when it's obvious that it's that the outcome right now is deeply unfair and you need to allow the small businesses who didn't have the right kind of banking relationships to be able to compete on, on an equal playing field with the ones who did. And so why are they eking out these tranches? Why are they saying, well, we'll give you 350. And then if that turns out to be not enough, we'll give you another 250. And if that turns out to be not enough, maybe we'll give you a little bit more. Just allocate like a trillion dollars or something. And then yeah. any money left over, you can claw back and use for something else. I mean, it seems like there's a real prejudice against it. There's no other way to look at it and say, oh, the the federal government sees small businesses completely differently than the large businesses that are able to tap into this all this this river of Fed money and be okay. And then making these small businesses kind of like go begging for money. Well, the diff and, there know, is a big difference, well Emily, which is that the big river of Fed money for big businesses, which is a big river of money and is actually working pretty well, is loans. And all of it needs to be paid back every penny. The small businesses okay. are not loans. They're basically grants dressed up as loans. And for that reason, you need to um, you need to raise the money from Congress. You can't just magic the money out of thin air from the Fed. And so Congress is going to be sitting there going, oh, sucking their teeth, going, oh, this is, you know, fiscal, blah, blah, blah. And so it becomes harder. One of the things I wrote about in my newsletter this week was the way that um, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury have been working together to really maximize the amount of money that is going into the economy. But the PPP program is somewhere that really the Federal Reserve can't help much. They, are, they have said they're going to start buying up these PPP loans for banks like Wells Fargo who really need to get them off their balance mm -hmm. sheets. But that's super marginal. Really, you need Congress to allocate this capital. And Congress is about as functional as you would expect it to be right now. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, so now we're we're emer what's emerging is really this like two tier response to this crisis where small businesses and individuals are kind of left twiddling their thumbs, not they are not getting the money they need right away. Small businesses are going to go under, and big businesses, thanks to the Fed, even though it's loans, are going to probably be okay and are going to swoop in and take over. They're they're going to be the ones popping up in where the small businesses kind of failed. And at the end of the day, if we ever get out of this, we're just going to see more inequality in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I, the one thing I will say, though, is that like this has been there is so much more aid and so much more aid more quickly this time around than we've ever seen before. And it is far from perfect. And I think we're all in agreement that this should have been structured differently and should have been structured better. But I, like, I guess I would say that, yes, you know, it is probably likely that a lot of small businesses are going to fail and that is horrible and that shouldn't ha be happening. And that is going to be a fault of poor response, a poor response. But like, I, the one thing I will say is, you know, we are just really starting to see this money coming out now. So we still don't totally know what the effect is going to be. One you know, thing so, that so we, I, the one thing that we do know is that 
you know, I've been hearing from small business owners who literally said, I needed that PPP money in the first tranche. If I didn't get it in the first tranche, I have to shut down. Versus the big businesses in the S&P 500, like the biggest businesses in America is basically what the S&P 500 is, bouncing back up thanks to all of the liquidity that the Fed is providing. I think Emily is absolutely right that it is. this is one of those periods where inequality between businesses has been massively exacerbated and the, the bigger your balance sheet, the more access you have to capital markets, and generally the larger you are, the better off you are, with very few exceptions. No, I mean, I... I and there's no question that's going to be bad for everyone, right? You have more of these big businesses taking over. It, it means more monopolies cornering different industries. It means lower pay for people. It means wider pay disparity. I mean, it's, it's really, really well, bad. Well, although if just you look to at be the, fair, the, like that the companies, the, I mean, I, I look, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with you in the sense that like, I don't think it's a good thing if we have a bunch of small businesses going under. I don't think it's a good thing if we have like greater monopoly power. I, I completely agree with you on that. Although the one thing I will say is that working for a larger company, you tend to be paid better. That, so the idea that if you you tend to be paid the worst if you're working for smaller companies and, and you have less but protection. But there aren't enough jobs companies. at large companies. This is one of the long-term trends, which is absolutely mm -hmm. clear, is that the total employment in the S&P 500 has been trending downwards for decades. And you have, you know, large companies, certainly, you know, the the trillion dollar companies out there like Microsoft have a lot of employees, but they don't have nearly as many employees as like, you know, $100 billion companies did 20 years ago. And so, yeah, if you're lucky enough to work for Microsoft, that's great. But that's not the source of employment. Small business is the real place where, you know, tens of millions of Americans need to find employment. And if small business fails en masse, that's going to just completely decimate the employment situation in America. No, I mean, I... I, I mostly agree with that. I'll, I was just basically trying to make the argument that having small, having larger businesses doesn't necessarily mean people are going to be paid worse. Yeah, but it means they're I, not going to be paid at all because be they're going to be unemployed. That, that, I think yeah, it also I mean, does mean that they'll be treated worse. I think one thing this crisis has made clear is that large businesses don't really care that much about their lowest paid employees. I guess it I mean, I, I, yeah. foods what it's like to work for a big business. Yeah, no, I, and I will agree with you that I think it, it varies by business. Although it right now, if you happen to be lucky enough to work for a large business, you are far more protected than if you're working for right. a small business. Right, and we, we've all, have, yeah, we we all agree yeah, on that. that. Yeah. That's okay. all I'm saying. That I don't, Fair. but I don't disagree that moving forward, it yes, like small businesses, it's like fifty percent of employment. Like yeah, we definitely yeah. need to protect small businesses. I'm just saying that. A, we're just seeing the money come out now, which it should have been done before. So we, we still don't quite know what the impact is going to be. I don't necessarily think we're going to completely wipe out small businesses. I think that that's unlikely. Like, I, I think that we're going, I think we are going to see stimulus after stimulus after stimulus for probably multiple years. So I, I guess I would just say that I agree with your sentiment. I just don't know if I think the outcome is going to be what you're saying. Yeah, I just, I well, worry, I really do worry <laughs> that it's, big business, which is well-placed to benefit from multiple rounds of stimulus much more than small businesses, because the small businesses fail first and fail fastest. And once they've failed, they don't benefit anymore. They're gone. 
Right. But I guess what would be the alternative? I mean, you're right. Being in the sense that it's always better to be a big business that has more cushion, obviously, just like it's better to be rich. You have more cushion, of course. But I guess I'm not sure what the alternative would be. I mean, we could have gone back in time a few months ago and improved all of this, but we can't. So I guess what is then the alternative moving forward? Just take a giant money gun and shoot it at everybody in America <laughs> until we're all okay. That's fair. I actually would agree with that. <laughs> the U.S. is in a That's very, so very special position. We, we, you know, like as long as we're the reserve currency and foreign countries need to hold our dollars and the worse the economy gets, the more dollars they need to hold, we can basically print as much money as we want. So I think there is a Whoa, false sense Anna. of, you know, I mean, this is the, U, I mean, I'm, this, 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 is, this is the point at which Anna Shemansky goes full on MMT. We have, I am can, not like, going full MMT. Happening? We will go to another episode where I can explain why I disagree with many tenets of MMT. But, but, but this, no, I love this, there's this um, video on Reddit of like Jay Powell coming in and saving the planet to the tune of like, um, all we need is a hero. And, and there's this bit in the video where he, cures the coronavirus by injecting $5 trillion directly into the veins of everyone who has it, which I, I think is, yeah, that's the way to do it. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's talk about one of the biggest businesses of all, which is Amazon, which bless them, their stock just hit a brand new all-time high. Aren't you happy for the Amazon shareholders? Jeff Bezos is doing well. Good for him. So Amazon as a company seems to be doing great. Um, and yet the headlines don't seem to be that good for Amazon in that there were a couple which spring to mind. One is that they seem to be have run into a huge amount of problems in France, which basically shut them down. And another is that the affiliate fees they pay for sending people to Amazon to buy things, they've just slashed those by like 50 to 70%, which kind of make, you think that they are in trouble like why would you do that right now when all of these small media companies and whatever like really need that cash flow why would you turn off that spigot so what's going on with amazon amazon is even though its stock is up a lot and it's seeing demand like it like beyond christmas shopping levels of demand it can't meet the demand um as soon as this started happening, uh, employees did start calling in sick. At the same time, it saw this huge increase in demand. And right now, the Amazon algorithms are trying to actively tamp down demand, which is kind of crazy to think about and prioritize essential goods. But they're so um, kind of uh, cagey about their algorithm and stuff. It's not even clear what they're considering to be essential goods. The Times is a good story right now about um, one game in particular called Exploding Kittens that um, is sold out on Amazon because everyone's trying to, everyone wants to buy games right now and puzzles. Um, and Amazon isn't filling orders of Exploding Kittens quickly. And if you actually go to your Amazon app on your phone, the top page just gives you like options of things to download, not even to buy. Cause they like don't want you buying stuff anymore, which is super 
weird to think about because Amazon's whole jam is like, we get you the stuff super fast. Like we have everything you need and more and we'll get it to you before you even like blink your eyes. But now that's not happening. And then at the same time, it's having all these labor issues. And, and in France, you really saw this come to fruition in a way you would never see in the United States where a French court was like, Amazon, you're not doing enough to keep your workers safe. So you can't really do much business right now until you fix that. And Amazon is just like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to shut down operations in France. Well, to be fair, though, I mean, like, Amazon couldn't possibly continue operations with the law, with the ruling that they had, because the idea of like, you can only deliver these essential goods. And the idea of what is an essential good is so hard to determine that there's no way I'm not look, I'm not defending Amazon and other things. But I understand why they would have shut down in France then because Wait, can you explain that? They because can't operate. Like, yeah. Like, why, why can't they, you operate legal, only of only delivering essential goods? Because what is an essential good? Well, isn't that, that is can't, can't you just ask a, the French government what an essential good is? French and, defined it. Yeah. No, they didn't. They did not define it well at all. Like the ability Food, to be medical actually, supplies. What is that? What is what is considered a medical supply? What but, is not? But, but Anna, like, that's so, not the like, problem, right? I mean, any French company, if they were told by the French government to say you can only deliver essential goods, would just be like, okay, and they started only delivering essential goods. And then if the French government starts like having quibbles with what's considered essential, they work that out and they stop dis- delivering the things that aren't essential and continue d- delivering the things that are. I, I feel like Amazon is like, this reminds me a little bit of how they behaved with New York City over the HQ2 thing that they, yes. it's like, we are going to do it our way. And if you aren't happy with the way that we do it our way, we're just not going to do it. I mean, and I get that. I, I just feel like this particular like, look, I think there are very, very, very real genuine concerns about Amazon workers and Amazon workers being protected in the U.S. and in many places. I think that that like 100 percent, we are all in agreement on that. The issue in France, I think if you actually read the story, it wasn't that Am- like Amazon fulfilled the requirements of what the French health inspectors wanted they just didn't then meet with like union representatives. And so that was what, so I guess I'm kind of like, look, we're in a situation right now where workers are putting their lives on the line. So I'm not saying they shouldn't be doing everything. I just will say French labor laws are very, very complicated. And, and they're if you not operate like in France, States. then you deal with French labor laws. Like this, this is, this is the, the, the attitude, which I have an issue with in, within Amazon is that, very kind of Silicon Valley, like we we saw this with Uber a lot, which was basically, we are going to operate according to the laws that we think make sense. And maybe they're even right that the way that they think they should operate is the way that it is the most sensible way to operate. And then if you government people come in and say, no, do it some other way, then either we are going to break the law or we are just going to shut down, but we're not going to change the way we operate in order to comply with your laws. And especially now in a situation where we are facing a public health crisis and the first job of every corporate and individual citizen is to just do whatever they're being asked to do by the government, whether it makes sense or not, because that's the only way that you can get through a public health crisis. I think that kind of attitude is, you know, let's just say regrettable. Yeah, I mean, like, I I don't entirely disagree with you. I, I just I would say that the position of U.S. companies in France is not the same as the position of French companies in France. The legal liability is a lot higher for U.S. companies. We have seen that 
frequently in the last number of years. I'm not saying that I think Amazon is right. All I'm saying is that when I read that story, I was like, I don't know. I, I just feel like it's not as cut and dried, perhaps, as, as it is being portrayed. I'm looking at Amazon. I'm looking at it, you know, obviously having a bunch of difficulty delivering because it is facing unprecedented demand, not only from Amazon.com, but also from Whole Foods. You know, they built their entire business on delivering directly to people's doors. And now people really want stuff delivered to their doors. And they're like, we just cannot cope with this kind of demand. And so you can see how there are issues here. But faced with those kind of issues, I look at like, what as I say, what they did with affiliate fees. And I'm like, that doesn't help anyone or anything. If you're in France and you just shut down every everything you do, that doesn't help anyone or anything. Like You are not being constructive. You're not being a good corporate citizen. You are not trying to do your best to help the societies in which you operate get through this crisis. You are really looking internally at your own bottom line and saying, like, what's best for us? And that leaves a taste in my mouth that isn't great given how big and powerful and rich they are. It's like, now is that the opportunity for them to really step up and say, like, in a time of crisis, we are going to do what's best for everyone rather than just what's best for us. And when you say what's best for us, it's not even clear to me who us is, because if you just look at the way Amazon has been treating its uh, warehouse workers over the past month, it's just really abysmal. I mean, they, they've given them a little bit extra per hour to come in. At the same time, they're telling them they're free to stay home if they feel sick, but they don't get paid. So it's like they've incentivized people to come in. And then when they come in, in a lot of these places, a lot of the workers I'm speaking to... They're not doing social distancing. There isn't enough PPE. They don't have masks. They're getting sick. Um, they've fired at least three workers who have spoken up and protested. I mean, but I think it was Vice who had the leaked meeting notes um, from one meeting where Bezos was, where they were saying like one protester in particular, you know, they're going to go after him because he's not articulate um, and other kind of coded language. I just feel like they were coming out of this, which is looking like gross. And I, and I don't disagree with you on that at all. Like I, and I think that, you know, the, the labor issues, especially in the United States, I completely agree with you on all of these things. I was just saying in that specific instance in France, <laughs> if you read the story, it just feels like it is not perhaps being reported appropriately the way it is depicted. That's all I'm saying. But in the Times, Anna, there was like a quote from Amazon that was like, we can't possibly agree to just ship essential supplies because what if accidentally something non-essential goes out? It was like, are you kidding? Well, no, it's accidentally. A, yeah, no, I, I mean, I'll give you the accidentally thing is stupid, but it it's one thing if Amazon's going to say, I'm going to take my ball and go home and we're just done with France. Okay, in, 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 a, in, in a crisis, I would say, yeah, that, that's not what you should be doing. However, if what they're saying is, well, while we, we can't possibly operate with this particular ruling in place, so we're going to try to figure something out and then, rest, and then restart operations, which it kind of sounded to me is like what they're doing. I, I just think that that's a different thing. I am just saying that I think there's a tad bit more nuance in this story than, oh, everything evil, they're all evil. Some of the things they've done are horribly evil. I will agree with you. I just think there's, there's more nuance. 
Yeah, they're like ninety. Please send your angry yeah. emails to Anna hates everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, on, so, 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 Emily reckons they're ninety percent evil. I'll, I'll, I might even go lower than that. I'll say like eighty-five percent. Where, where would you say, Anna? I don't know. Right now, maybe I'll say like sixty percent. They deliver everything to me. Well, except groceries right now because I can't get groceries. But I use Amazon for everything. So I feel like I'm a total hypocrite if I say, "Oh, this company is so evil." Yet I will use them for everything. I am a total hypocrite. I, I will cop to that completely because our toilet paper subscription is from Amazon, as I've mentioned previously, and paper towels as well. But I haven't ordered exploding kittens yet. <laughs> Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so this is a weirdness that I have noted Um Again, in my newsletter, which I'm going to plug for the second time this week, edge.axios.com, um, is the in this time of every single business wanting to maximize the amount of cash that it has, drawing down their credit lines as much as they can, going into the capital markets and issuing bonds as much as they can, you know, applying for PPP loans as much as they can. Anything, any way that you can get cash, they are getting cash. Uh, you, you, the pe- companies are laying off people, following people, pay cuts. It's all to save and raise cash. And then there's one thing that they aren't doing, which is suspending dividends. Like, why is it so hard to suspend dividends? If the 500 companies in the S&P 500, only 21 of them are reducing their dividends at all. Some of them are increasing their dividends. Only 10 of them, which are mostly airlines, are suspending their dividends. All of this cash is going out the door in the form of dividend payments in the middle of a global pandemic, and I do not understand why. Why are these companies borrowing money with one hand and sending out the door with the other? Why not just do neither and wind up in the same cash position? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on which company you're talking about. I would definitely agree that a lot of if companies, especially the companies that are going to be getting loans, the companies that are laying off for furloughing workers, paying out dividends now, I, I will completely agree with you. I, I think that that doesn't make any sense. And I would actually also tell you that, like, you talk with a lot of different shareholder groups, they will say the same thing, that the reaction to, to cutting dividends now is not the same as it normally is. So I, I think a lot I, of companies... I don't think the shareholders are really driving this. This is the weird thing, right? Retained earnings are just as valuable to me as a dividend right now if I'm a shareholder. I don't understand, if not more valuable, because it makes the company more robust. I don't see as a shareholder, like, why I want that company to give me the cash when the company could actually use that cash, you know, as, as an important buffer. Right. I would say in, in normal times, there's a reason why as a shareholder, right. you'd rather have them give it out. But this is not nor- these are not normal times. So I, I don't disagree with you. And that's why I'm saying that's why also a lot of shareholders would say we want to make sure companies are in a good position. I, I think a lot of this honestly has to do with this fairly irrational way that a lot of companies view dividends, which is this idea that if you cut dividends, it is sending this very negative signal about your company. Now, I think we can probably all agree that at this particular moment, 
Like if if a company is cutting their dividend, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody thinks like this company is so much worse than every other company, especially if you have a number of companies that are cutting dividends. Now, I I do think it matters which companies you're talking about or which firms you're talking about. Like if we're talking about U.S. banks, I think it actually is a little bit more questionable than if you're talking about like Marriott. Why? Yeah. So why banks banks in particular, right, are facing, have these massive balance sheets, which constitute mostly loans to companies and individuals. Um, We have absolutely no idea what the default rate is going to end up being, how long this pandemic is going to last, what the future holds. Like, while banks normally have some vague idea of, like, where the economy is going and how their borrowers are going to behave, like, right now they have no idea at all. There is just a huge, big question mark even in like this quarter, let alone like next year. And so basic prudence demands like, well, let's see how this thing plays out before we start dividending profits back to shareholders, because we might need those profits in a few quarters time. We have no idea. When you're talking about US banks, this is not the same with European banks, but with US banks, most of the money that's returned to shareholders, the vast majority is through buybacks. So the fact that they suspended buybacks is a much bigger deal than regardless of whatever they do with dividends. That's number one. Number two, the way the dividends work for U.S. banks is they actually have to be approved previously by the Fed. They have to be pre-funded. On top of that, you also have U.S. because you have a lot of U.S. banks have been reporting this past week. Banks are provisioning a lot of money, like a lot of money for bad loans. So I can understand why, and also banks have a lot of internal modeling that is a lot stricter than even the internal mo- or even the modeling that you would get from its regulators. So, it, right now, I can understand why banks would say, "Well, why would we not pay out our dividends? It doesn't make any sense." I, However, so okay, can you just because like you can understand it, but I can't. So explain it to me on the same basis that we're talking about all other companies, like. There's a dividend payment which will go out to shareholders at some point. Let's say that, you know, I'm paying them 10 cents a share for this quarter and 10 cents a share for next quarter and 10 cents a share for the following quarter. Like, what is the harm in just saying, like, listen, I'm going to pay you 40 cents a share in a year. Once it becomes clear that I don't need that money, I still intend to pay you this dividend. Let me just push it back just on the off chance that I need it because we are in a period of incredible uncertainty right now. Why not do that rather than what you're doing, which is saying like, oh, well, we have models and our models are very reliable so we can trust our models that we don't aren't going to need this money. Because like we learned in the financial crisis that no models can cope with this kind of a shock. I mean, like I, so this is where like, I'm kind of of two minds of it because I don't disagree that I think in this particular moment, if you had essentially all of the U.S. banks say, we are all just going to be suspending our dividends. I don't think that there would be a you know massive negative hit on their share price. I don't think there'd be much damage. I actually think it, it might, you know, it really wouldn't do much harm for them to not pay out their dividend. So I, I don't entirely disagree with you. But what I would say is I understand also from the bank side where they're saying, look, you know, with some of the most negative, even factoring in like incredibly negative projections for what we might be seeing for the next few years, we can easily pay our dividend. So why wouldn't we pay our dividend? Like, again, I don't think what you're saying is wrong, but I also just don't think that's quite how the banks would see it. And which side you fall on probably just depends on if you work at the bank or not. 
think it's hard not to look at this through like an ethical or moral lens, and especially to take into consideration that um, that business roundtable thingy from a while ago, where they claimed that shareholders weren't their only priority in doing business anymore. They were going to take into account all the stakeholders. Um, The fact that a company like Marriott, even the banks are paying out dividends in a time of so much uncertainty at a time when they're laying off workers, furloughing workers, doing pay cuts kind of speaks to the bottom line hypocrisy of that statement. So I feel like even if you if you're paying the dividends and, and um, it's not maybe going to like ruin you or anything like that, the message it sends is so unmistakably, again, to use the word gross, um, that you probably should just cut it out. I mean, I don't entirely disagree with that. And I think number one, I, I do think if you're talking about a company like Marriott, then I think you're 100% right. I think the idea that they're going to be firing all these people and then paying out dividends, I, I, I agree with you. I'm like, that's horrible. And I also don't entirely disagree with you that if the banks probably it probably would be a nice sentiment to say like, look, you know, like we're all, you know, we're all taking our part. I I don't, I don't disagree. I'm just saying from the thinking of how I would imagine banks are thinking it's, it's that, well, there's no reason for us to cut it. So why would we cut it? I think, I think there's a deeper reason. I think this is just um, atavistic. I think that many, many years ago, back, you know, in the thirties, forties, fifties, and even into the sixties, when stocks were held individually by individuals, the the vast majority of shares in the company were not held by mutual funds and insurance companies and hedge funds, but they were just like individuals held individual shares in individual companies. There were no index funds. There were no ETFs. Um, A bunch of those individuals, especially retirees, especially people who sort of were working before Social Security came into existence, built up a stock portfolio as a form of retirement income. And the retirement income was the dividend payments that they would get from the stocks. And AT&T in the 1930s kept on paying its dividend, even though it laid off 185,000 people, because it actually had a huge number of retirees across America, the you know famous widows who needed that income from their dividend to live on. And that is just not how the stock market works anymore. Companies ret- you know, return money to shareholders via buybacks, as you say, more than dividends. If you need money from your stock portfolio, you just sell some stocks rather than um, waiting for those companies to pay you a dividend. Like Everything is financialized in a much more sophisticated way now. And, and people aren't just sitting there sort of, you know, paying their rent checks with dividend payments anymore but there is this sort of path dependency here and people somewhere corporate treasurers the stock market somewhere still are in that mindset even if they don't realize it of people need these dividend payments to live on and i think that is part of the problem I mean, I think that on the one hand you're correct that i do think a lot of the way that companies view dividends is based on a very kind of old-fashioned notion. And and a lot of it also is this idea of signaling. Though I would also say that, you know, dividend income is not insignificant in overall return. Dividends are... No, 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 I'm not saying that for a minute. and And I agree that those are two different things. But I would also say that, you know, as yields on fixed income have really, really declined over the past 10 years, 
if you're talking about income from any type of fund, dividends are going to be more important in that sense. So while I don't, I'm not saying that that is an excuse for companies to be paying out massive dividends in the middle of a crisis. I'm just saying that dividends do still play a major role moving forward. They will still play a major role. I'm really glad people get social security payments and don't have to rely on companies to pay dividends anymore in retirement. That makes me. Yeah, that, that's good. an improvement. You see, you know, that's better, yeah, right? Anna? It's, be- it's better to have yeah. social security than rely on dividends. Yes. Yes. Good. Surely you can yeah, agree on that one, Anna Shemansky. Yes, yes, I think Social Security is good, Uh, Uh, but you probably want to also have a retirement fund if you can. (laughs) I'm going to start off the numbers round with a related number, which is $200 billion, which is the amount of money that Neil Kashkari, the president of the Minneapolis Fed, reckons that the U.S. banks should raise to be on the safe side in this crisis, just in case stuff winds up being much worse than their internal models project that it will be. And I think that is just a indication of how crazy it is that the banks are paying dividends. Like Kashkari is saying, of course they shouldn't pay dividends, quite the opposite. They should be raising $200 billion. And that just gives you an idea of the potential magnitude of this crisis. No one knows how bad it's going to be. No one knows how bad it's going to be for the big banks. No one knows how well the Fed is going to be able to jump in and prevent a wave of major corporate defaults. But precisely because no one knows, we want the banks to be as strong as they possibly can be right now. Emily, do you have a number? I do. It's it's de- another number. I feel like all I did today was just like say how angry I was about companies. So <laughs> This number is $500. That is the amount of Smithfield's responsibility bonus that they gave to workers at their meat processing plant if they came in and did all their shifts. Meanwhile, COVID was spreading like wildfire, um, particularly through their North Dakota meat processing plant. I think more than 600 positive uh, COVID cases in this one plant. And if you go, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, it's just a really sad story of how this company completely dodged responsibility for keeping its workers safe with very tragic consequences. They've had at least one death so far. And again, one of the biggest outbreaks, if not the biggest outbreak um, in the country in North Dakota. They gave workers hair nets to use as masks. Hair they use these that's, that's hair insane. nets, beard nets to use as uh, PPE. Um, to keep them protected from coronavirus and incentivize them to come in and get the money. That is all. Don't buy their products. Thank you. <laughs> Anna, do you have a number? I do. Um, and I will not be buying those meat products, just FYI. Well, you are a vegetarian. Good job, Anna. My number is $320 million. And that's the amount of money in these pandemic bonds that were issued in 2017 with the idea this is this great way that we're going to help these poor countries when there's a pandemic. And turns out these pandemic bonds, which there are two different bonds, have coronavirus as one of the um, one of the diseases that are included still have not triggered um, despite there being, you know, this massive pandemic. 
because of the way that the bond, it's it's insane. I mean, like, and it's, I had actually looked at these like a few months ago when this was kind of first starting. And I, at the time I was like, if you look at the prospectus, it's like, it's nuts when you look at all the restrictions of what would actually need to happen in order for these to trigger. And the, the issue is that the rate of acceleration is not high enough in developing nations. It's, it's a, the formula is kind of, kind of amazing. Is, but, is it pretty much expected that they will trigger or one of them is maturing quite soon, right? And might not. Both of them trigger. are maturing quite soon. And so They're like, if, maturing if, in July. And so like in this weird way, like if we don't see a rate of acceleration before July, then they'll never trigger. Correct. Yeah. If they, and it, it has to be in nations that are receiving World Bank funding, that rate of acceleration beyond a certain level in those countries, then they would trigger. I think it is unlikely that they will trigger. And so then what will have ended up happening is you'll just have been paying very high coupons for no money going to help anyone in a pandemic. I think these were a very poor example of trying to use finance to solve everything. And while I am a fan of finance to solve many things, (laughs) this one is not one of them. This isn't a crisis finance can solve. Unless the Fed uh, apparently has their, their money gun where they're injecting. Yeah, yeah, the Fed should just parachute into West Africa with a money gun and inject every African (laughs) with $5 trillion, and that will solve the problem. Um, Do it! (laughs) Okay, I think that's (laughs) it for us this week. If Jay Powell can save America, he can save Africa as well, right? Why not? Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Thank you to Jasmine Molly for producing. Thank you for all of your emails, slatemoney at slate.com. We've got a big one next week with Richard Florida. Thank you honestly, to everyone who's been writing in with comments about density and the relationship between COVID and density. And we're going to go into a lot of detail about that with Richard Florida, who's an urbanist at the University of Toronto. So look forward to that one. And we will talk to you then on Sleep Money. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.